The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone. Well rested? Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, excellent. So welcome back. So we're going to continue where we left off yesterday. And... Uh, so let's see. Okay, so we are looking at this uh, simile of the elephant's footprint. And uh, we are now coming to the, uh, the part where the Buddha actually lays out the Buddhist path. And of course this Buddhist path is then similar here to the idea of the following the elephant's footprint and finding the bull elephant, finding the Buddha, so to speak, the Naga, at the end of that path. And uh, so we are looking at the, uh, the Buddha arising in the world, uh, what it means uh, to be a Buddha. We have looked at all of these uh, qualifying terms and terminology and phrases and things. Uh, we're kind of coming towards the end of that. We had a look at yesterday this uh, very famous passage, Itipiso passage, uh, that you find throughout the suttas. Uh, and remember, this is how the Buddha says uh, that we should think about the Buddha. This is how the Buddha says we should reflect on the Buddha. So if you want to do things like Buddha Nusati, yeah, the recollection of the Buddha, uh, which is a very common way of uh, meditation or contemplation in Buddhism, uh, this is how the Buddha recommends we should do it. Uh, yeah, so it's very useful. But as so often, you have to think about what these things mean. Because when you think about what they mean and what they mean to you, that's when they become powerful and they become something very useful. And it becomes kind of emotional. Yeah, It can bring up a sense of joy and happiness. And this is really what the Buddhist path is about. Yeah, If you think about Buddhist meditation, how it works, it is always about joy and happiness, pity, sukha, uh, Pamuja and these kind of qualities and these are the foundations for Buddhist meditation practice. Uh, without that joy, without that happiness to kind of wet the meditation, uh, the mind is not attracted to the meditation object. Uh, this is what allows the meditation to proceed. Uh, and this is one of the famous ways of giving rise to those qualities, Yeah, to become happy. You got the Buddha as your teacher. Wow, I got the Buddha as my teacher. Uh, yeah, you cannot get into that because uh, having the um, preeminent spiritual teacher in the world as your teacher is kind of amazing, isn't it? It's kind of extraordinary here. Yeah. You understand what the Buddha is about, the person who can point you the way to real contentment and happiness and this kind of things. It's kind of astonishing to have a teacher like this. Uh, everything else kind of fades in comparison there. So you have to kind of get your head around that. And when you get your head around that, it starts to become very powerful. And this is really what this contemplation is about, understanding what you're dealing with. Yeah, the Buddha is something extraordinary in the world. So um, uh, we come towards the very end of this Itipiso passage. We have looked at uh, you know, the idea of accomplished in knowledge and conduct, holy, knower of the world, supreme guide uh, for those who wish to train, uh, teachers of gods and humans. I didn't say much about that yet, but I mentioned it before, a bit earlier on, uh, uh, what that means. And uh, it means, of course, that the Buddha 
is not just kind of supreme among humans, but he is supreme in the entire kind of universe. Yeah, here universe is kind of expanded to me way beyond what we normally think about the universe. Here it kind of includes all kinds of beings. Uh, so the Buddha is kind of uh, beyond that. Yeah, he's got a very powerful expression of that. You find that in the sutta I mentioned yesterday, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta on the Noble Search. And the Buddha is thinking, yeah, you know, it's so problematic to teach people. Yeah, so much dukkha to teach people. Maybe I just leave those people alone. They won't understand what I have to say anyway. Yeah, yeah very famous passage. Yeah, in the, and then, of course, the Brahma Sahampati. Yeah. And remember when we talk about Brahma Sahampari, what we're talking about, we're talking about the highest god in the Brahmanical universe. This is the top of the Brahmanical kind of, you know, hierarchy of spiritual beings. And then Brahma Sahampati comes down to the Buddha, bows down to the Buddha, yeah, and says, please, you know, teach, because people will understand. So this is kind of the idea of the Buddha kind of being wiser, having a deeper sense of understanding than anything in the known universe at that time. Even Brahma Sahampati comes down and bows to the Buddha. It's kind of interesting. I think, actually we'll come to this later on, I think. Brahma Sahampati puts his robe over one shoulder. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> it's kind of nice, isn't it? Because uh, I guess these Brahmas, they're just like us in some ways. Put your robe over one shoulder like anyone else would do in those days. So... Um, in those days, even the lay people would put the robe over one shoulder. Yeah. But uh, these days, things have changed. <laughs> so, teachers of gods and humans. And one of the things that I sometimes recommend people to do is to uh, try an experiment, a thought experiment, uh, on what it is like to meet the Buddha. Uh, yeah, Kind of try to think that out. What would it like to take the Buddha as your teacher? Uh, what does that actually feel like? Yeah. I did talk about this briefly before, but uh, Im imagine what that would be like. Yeah, imagine that you are somewhere in the forest somewhere. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, you know, in the it's whether it's in India, probably India more likely to find the Buddha in India than in Australia. But <laughs> anyway, you maybe I don't know if you've been to India. I've been to India a few times, uh, and imagine kind of going off into the forest there somewhere. Not that much forest left in those areas, but uh, wilderness anyway. Uh, maybe you go off in the bush in Australia, and then you kind of uh, you have heard that the Buddha is there. So you kind of walk into the bush looking for the Buddha. The Buddha is sitting at the root of a tree here. Uh, you know the Buddha, he looks pretty much like a monk. Yeah, the Buddha went forth, uh, he shaved his hair off, uh, he put on robes, uh, just like monks do. He would look like a monk pretty much. Not exactly like this, because these days we look a little bit different from that time, but very similar. Uh, you go into the forest, uh, and what does it feel like? Uh, and you can imagine what it feels like, because this is the kind of the person with this incredible reputation. Yeah, the greatest spiritual genius in human history. And everyone is kind of raving about the Buddha. Uh, they didn't use the word rave in those days, but uh, we use it now. So they were raving about the Buddha. Wow, this person is amazing. And you feel a bit apprehension. You feel a bit nervous. You feel a bit cheap. Am I, am I worthy? What, what if he reads my mind, right? Am I ready to have my mind read? Kind of scary if someone reads your mind, right? Because there's so much rubbish going on in people's <laughs> minds. Uh, I know from personal experience that there's a lot of rubbish going in, <laughs> in people's minds. Uh, 
So you're not really ready for that. So you go in, you feel a bit kind of shaky. Yeah, oh, Buddha, so powerful. He can probably annihilate me with one thought if he wanted to. Uh, yeah. And so you go into the forest and you see this person uh, at the root of a tree, uh, at the foot of a tree. Uh, and then you kind of start to feel, if, you know, you look at this person and think, wow, this person looks really cool. Cool in the deep sense of cool, emotionally cool, not hot, but really kind of relaxed and easygoing and cool in a very profound way. And you feel a little bit less nervous when you see that. And you go up to the Buddha, this ordinary, quite ordinary looking, yeah, it's just this person in robes looking like a monk largely. There's nothing kind of supernatural about this person at all. It looks like any other human being, not like a god or anything. But there's something about this person uh, that is different. Uh, something about the person is the way that the Buddha sits, uh, the sense of peace about the Buddha, uh, the sense of kind of benevolent air around someone uh, who has a kind of uh, feeling about them. Uh, and the closer you get, uh, you start to really relax. Uh, and then because you see these beautiful qualities, because they like emanate from the Buddha, uh, you go all the way up to the Buddha, you just want to bow down, because you understand that there's something very holy and powerful about this person. You just naturally want to bow down, so you go up to the Buddha and you bow down because you know what you're seeing now is really worthy of bowing down to. There's something here that is extraordinary. You don't find this with ordinary human beings. There's a feeling about this person that is really exceptional. You can't really put your you, you don't really know exactly what it is, but there's a feeling about this person that is really extraordinary. And you know it is worthy of bowing down. There's no sense of ego, no sense of self. It's not as if someone is going to take advantage of you or anything like that. There's just this power of beautiful qualities. So you bow down to the Buddha. When you sit down, and then the Buddha looks at you. And what does the Buddha say? The Buddha says, how are you? <laughs> Have you had a nice meal? Have you come from far away? This is what the Buddha says in the suttas. Yeah. Are you tired from traveling? Yeah. No, I'm fine. I have not no hunger. Okay. So why are you here? <laughs> and then you may have a question, right, to the Buddha. And maybe you don't know what to say anymore. Just like Ajahn Brahm, when he meets Ajahn Tate, your mind goes blank because there's nothing to be asked in the presence of something so powerful. But now you're really relaxed because you feel the benevolence, the power of the metta and the compassion of this being. Yeah. So you're really relaxed and you say, yeah, actually, I do have a question. Yeah, I have a problem with my husband, a problem with my wife. Yeah, can you help? <laughs> and you feel a bit sheepish because you feel I should be asking something more profound yeah, than this, but you don't really have any other questions, so you ask this question. And of course, the Buddha has infinite patience with you. Uh, and he says, okay, well, this is how you deal with this problem. Yeah, you, this is to be expected in life. Yeah, just relax. It will go over. Just be kind. Uh, and things will kind of, whatever. Yeah, the Buddha gives you a very simple teaching. Yeah. And this is one of the things that you often find in the suttas, which is kind of astonishing about the Buddha. He gives often very simple teachings. Yeah, it doesn't say anything profound. He says, well, be kind, and if you be kind, you are, things are going to work out. If you are kind, you're going to feel confident in the assemblies. If you feel kind, you are going to be more happy in the future, and these kind of things. He gives just very simple teaching here. And then you say, you feel really grateful, but the main impact is not the teaching, but where the teaching is coming from. 
The feeling of the person is far more important than the content of the teaching. Yeah? Or the content gets its meaning because of the personal qualities. Uh, yeah, that's what matters. Uh. If you can get lots of beautiful teachings from someone who doesn't have the personal qualities, uh, and then it kind of just is like water off a duck's back. It doesn't go in because you don't get that feeling of something special going on. Uh. And then you say sadhu sadhu or whatever, uh, and then you bow down again, uh, and then you walk away. And by now you feel really, really at ease. Uh really, really peaceful, uh, as if you've had a shower of good qualities just entering inside of you, uh, this osmosis feeling of just going through you and going into you. Uh, and it leaves a very, very powerful impact on your mind. Uh, you can never forget this meeting again in the future. Uh, just as you meet someone very powerful in the now, even in the present day, uh, if you meet a person like that, it never really leaves you, because it opens up uh, another possibility. Uh, you can see that there is something more to this world. How can someone be like this? How can they be so peaceful? How can they have such consistent kindness coming from such a deep place? How is that even possible? You know, most people are kind of, they get upset every now and again. They're full of craving. They're restless. They are have sloth and torpor. They don't have that brightness in them. But here is someone who goes beyond what you have ever seen before. And it opens up a possibility, a possibility of how to be human in an entirely different way, in a way which actually is truly satisfying, truly happy, truly beyond the ordinary suffering of human beings. And that, you know, that's what you want for yourself. You know this being has found something which is exactly what you want. And because you know that, this law has a very powerful impact on your mind. That feeling never leaves you. And because it never leaves you, you always come back to these teachings because it has made this profound impact on you. And from then on, maybe when you leave the Buddha, you say, oh, please, I want to become a disciple straight away because you know this is what you want to, how you want to use your life. So this is the idea of meeting the Buddha. Yeah, It's a beautiful thing. And it's not scary. It's scary. It's a little bit scary in the beginning. But once you understand what the Buddha is, it's not scary at all anymore. Because this is the most kindest kind of being you can experience. And so this is how you can reflect like that. Yeah, And the more you kind of get the idea of what the Buddha is, then when you read the suttas and you connect that with the Buddha in a good way, then the suttas have much more impact uh, because of that personality that is behind it. Uh, actually, no personality, right? Non-self. The lack of personality behind it. <laughs> the, just the good qualities, right? Uh, so it's kind of marvelous. So this is the kind of reflections that we can do sometimes. Uh, and uh, then things start to come together. Uh, so, the Buddha is awakened. We discussed this before, uh, the word Buddha. Buddha means literally to be awake. So I think awakened is good. Enlightenment is also okay, but I think I prefer awakened a little bit. And then Bhagava, blessed. Bhagava is like a word used in India to, for anyone, a spiritual teacher who is special. Uh, and uh, so that is the Buddha. That's who the Buddha is. Uh, Buddha is awakened. Uh, and then... Uh, it carries on a little bit uh, of the qualities of the Buddha. So he realizes with his own insight uh, 
This world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas, uh, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, gods and humans, uh, and he makes it known to others. So this, of course, is what the Buddha is about. Very crucially, his own insight. Yeah, the Buddha only speaks from knowledge. Uh, when you read the suttas, it all comes from knowledge. It doesn't come from faith or confidence or anything like that. Uh, and the Buddha says as much elsewhere that everything he teaches is what he knows. Does he teach everything he knows? No, he only teaches a little bit of what he knows, that which is suitable for awakening, yeah, to lead you in the right way. Yeah. And it's interesting here, yeah, how he expresses this. What is this world that he teaches or realizes with his own insight? It's the world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas. Why does he mention that? It's kind of where was got Maras and Brahmas got to do with it? <laughs> and uh, I think the remember that the point here: the Buddha is expressing a brand new teaching that has never been heard in India before, and so he's teaching a population that are used to these kind of words. These are words that the Indian population understands. Brahma, for sure, they understand that. Gods, devas, for sure, they understand that. Mara. Probably as well. The Amara is also a word that was probably existing in India at the time. Otherwise, the Buddha, the Buddha wouldn't have taken it up. So the idea here is that the Buddha, well, I have understood with my own insight all of these things that you guys are have faith in, confidence in. I know what these things are. Yeah. So listen, because I've understood what's going on. So he's basically saying that he has encompassed with his own understanding all the tradition, traditional beliefs and how they work. Um, how they relate to reality behind it. That's what he's saying. Yeah? This population with its ascetics and Brahmins, uh, what does that mean? That he realizes with his own insight this population with its ascetics and Brahmins. It's kind of a little bit strange. But what I take this to mean is, you know, ascetics and Brahmins, these were the religious people, these were the philosophers at that time. And the fact that he has realized this means that he understands their doctrines. He understands their teachings. He understands whether their teachings relate to reality or whether they are false or not false or true or not true. And to what extent they might be true and where they may go wrong. Yeah. So he has an understanding of the philosophies and the religions of the time. That's how I interpret that phrase. So the ascetics and Brahmins, the gods and humans, similar thing again, yeah? which gods are deluded, which ones are not, what kind of teachings they have, and all of these kind of things. He understands the world, the world with all its ideas, all its confabulations perhaps as well, and all of these kind of things. So he understands this, and then he makes it known to others. Yeah, so first of all, you get the Buddha arising in the world, the Buddha penetrating through the darkness, through the veil of ignorance, pulling apart the veil of ignorance, seeing reality as it is. You have enlightenment, you have right view. Then he teaches it to others, Dhamma arising in the world. Buddha, then Dhamma, right? He makes it known to others. This is the world. This is how it is. There is rebirth. There is rebirth. You, yeah, this is what the Buddha says. And to me, this is, again, the most powerful reason to believe in rebirth is simply because the Buddha said so. 
if you have faith that there was an enlightened person two and a half thousand years ago, if you really believe that, uh, then you've got to take the idea of rebirth seriously. Uh, if you don't, well, then you don't really have full faith in the Buddha's awakening. And that's kind of problematic if you want to be a Buddhist. Uh, anyway, he teaches uh, Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, meaningful and well phrased. Uh, and he reveals a spiritual practice that's entirely complete and pure. He reveals, it teaches a Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. And there's a number of ways that can be understood, but I think the most useful way is to think of this, that the teaching, when you start practicing, you can benefit straight away. And you can benefit all the way along the path until the very end. So we shouldn't wait with experiencing the benefits of the practice. It's not as if, yes, if I torture myself today, I will be happy tomorrow. No, straight away, you should have benefits. Yeah, No need for torture. Hooray, no need for torture. So this is, um, so, benef so in the beginning, middle and the end, uh, meaningful and well phrased, I can, yeah. Meaningful and well phrased. Is that what it says? I've got to put my glass on. I can't just see a blur on the page. I'm kind of guessing what is there. Meaningful and well phrased. So, meaningful is sa attang or sadatang. And atta in Pali is dhamma and atta go to to go together. So, dhamma is the teaching of the Buddha, right? These are the doctrine. This is the four nikayas. It is what explains to us what we need to do. And atta is the goal, is the purpose of those teachings. So in other words, meaningful here is, um, has this idea that it has a, it has a goal, has a real goal, Buddhist teachings. Yeah, like a final goal, a destination, a point that we are going to, sadattang. It is meaningful, meaningful in the highest kind of sense of the word. And uh, so there is an end point, yeah? and uh, has a real purpose. And of course, from a Buddhist point of view, we would say in Buddhism that a lot of uh, spiritual teachings don't have that end point. Uh, let's say from a Buddhist point of view, and this purely from Buddhism, let's say that you kind of get reborn with some kind of God, yeah, maybe whatever God that is, uh, uh, whatever religion has an idea of God perhaps, uh, then we would say, well, you might get reborn with that God, uh, yeah, but then you only last for so long, yeah, and then it lose it again. So there is no real goal. There's no final goal with that teaching because you come back again later on to human existence. Whereas here he's saying this has a real goal, a real end point. And that is what kind of distinguishes here this teaching from many others. It is well articulated, well phrased. In other words, what that means is that the Buddha puts a lot of emphasis into phrasing it in the right way, putting the ideas together so they are coherent, they work together, yeah, using the right words. And of course, what that means then is that when we read these teachings, uh, we should pay attention to everything that is there. Every word matters. Uh, this is what I'm kind of doing now. Yeah? I'm kind of trying to pulling this apart into minutia and probably not any, giving it anywhere near the kind of attention that it deserves. Uh, but uh, it's because of my own limitations. You know, I can only do so much. So, uh, but the phrasing of the Buddha is very significant. There's a reason why it is phrased in a certain way. So you pay attention 
because of that. Uh, and he reveals a spiritual practice. This is the brahmacharya, the spiritual practice uh, um, that is entirely complete and pure. Another very significant phrase. The brahmacharya here is really just a spiritual life. Yeah, there's different kind of brahmacharyas in ancient India. Uh, it just means the celibate life, really. Um, and uh, he says here, it is complete, entirely complete. Yeah, and this is uh, significant. And I pointed these things out before, but I think it's worthwhile pointing it out again very briefly, even though many of you have come on my retreats before. Uh, that's great. And I, maybe you think, oh, you're repeating yourself too much. You know, please say something new. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I have always liked the idea of repeating things because the Buddha does that. And I think every time something is repeated, uh, it goes down a little bit more deeply. Uh, so it is complete, yeah. And what that means is that we don't need any additional teachings. Uh, so you should tell me to shut up and you should go back and read the sutta, the sutta on your own. Yeah? If we don't need any additional teaching, that's what it means. It means that we don't actually really need the Abhidhamma. Yeah, people love to read the Abhidhamma. People think this is the higher teaching. This is the kind of the ultimate expression of Buddhism. No, the ultimate expression is in the suttas. The Abhidhamma is secondary. We get it completely the wrong way around. And uh, uh, there are certain Buddhist countries where the Abhidhamma is like, wow, the Abhidhamma is the best. Yeah? Suttas are just kind of the temporary teaching and the Abhidhamma is the ultimate teaching. Yeah? But actually that's, that's really problematic yeah? because if you take the Abhidhamma to be the ultimate teachings, uh, then you are taking something which is not the word of the Buddha to be higher than the word of the Buddha. Of course, in those countries, they will say, well, the Abhidhamma is the word of the Buddha, so they will kind of refute that argument like that. But I, I think the historical analysis of the suttas and the, and the Pali language makes it very, very clear that the Abhidhamma cannot be the word of the Buddha. The suttas are. The suttas are primary. The Abhidhamma, at best, is secondary. So remember that. These suttas are complete. You don't need to read the Abhidhamma. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. This is to me it's kind of, because when I read Abhidhamma, I usually fall asleep because I think it's so boring. Yeah. Oh, Abhidhamma, oh, there are 91 mind states and 42, I don't know, associate mind states, and, and, and it's kind of this list and it combines them all kind of ways. And it's just, I don't know, I just find it really incredibly dry. Whereas the suttas are really alive. There's a Buddha is there on every page. You get a feeling for who he is. So I would, if I were you, sometimes people say, oh, I want to. I want to study Abhidhamma. Is it okay if I study Abhidhamma? Whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to decide for yourself. But I, I wouldn't really recommend it, to be honest. So, because the suttas are complete, you don't need anything else. You need just to reflect on them a little bit and draw out the meaning, but it's all there. But it also means that there is nothing superfluous in these teachings. Yeah? There's nothing additional. You cannot take things out of these teachings and still have a complete path. You cannot take out right view and say, yeah, rebirth is rubbish, we all know that, so chuck it out. Yeah? No need for rebirth. If you do that, you are basically destroying the coherence and the integrity of these teachings. It's very hard to read these suttas without Rebirth. If you try to take rebirth out, the whole thing collapses. It doesn't work anymore. It's so integral to the whole scheme. It's like one of the pillars of the suttas. 
Suttas without rebirth is like a house of cards without the bottom layer of cards. Yeah, the whole thing collapses. It doesn't work. Yeah. Same thing with things like the other thing that people like to leave out is sama samadhi. Yeah, don't need sama samadhi. Don't need deep samadhi. Why? It's too difficult. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so difficult, we don't need it. That's kind of getting things the wrong way around. Just because it's difficult means you can't leave it out. It's not actually difficult. It's just a matter of applying yourself in the right way. Difficult is the wrong way of thinking about it. It's just that you're not ready. That's all it means. Anyway, so it's complete and it's pure. Yeah, it is pure. All the teachings in the suttas is completely pure. Everything leads in the right direction. Everything has the idea of moving you on on the path. Yeah, it leads to purity and the teachings themselves are for that purpose all the way through. So that is what he reveals. Sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, so it's really nice when you see that. Uh, so, what I want to do now, you can see there's a little one there in the side, and that little one means that at this point we're going to move to, and we're going to drop this sutta, and we're going to move to another sutta for a while. And uh, so, uh, what I want, the reason for this is because I want to talk a little bit more about the Buddha, who he was, what he saw, the insights that he had. And uh, also because uh, this is from some s stories that you probably have never, you haven't, we don't really talk about these on retreats very much. So I thought I will actually read this for you because something I don't think I have actually read out on a retreat before. And uh, this is the story of the Buddha after his awakening, yeah, and what happened after his awakening. And this story uh, talks then about how the Buddha kind of developed the idea of the Dhamma, what happened, and how he started kind of uh, out teaching and all of these kind of things. So it adds to our insight into who the Buddha was as a person. Also, this is taken from the Vinaya Pitaka. Yeah, Vinaya Pitaka is the um, the um, uh, collection uh, on monastic law. That's how I translate it. So it's all about uh, the, mon the monastics and how they, the rules and regulations that apply to the monastic sangha. This is what this is really about. The whole Vinaya Pitaka, and this is the beginning of the Vinaya Pitaka. And it's surprising the Vinaya Pitaka doesn't begin with rules and regulations. The Vinaya Pitaka begins with the life story of the Buddha. Is that kind of strange? What's that got to do with rules and regulations? It's kind of weird. And this is something that you find throughout Buddhism in all the various schools of Buddhism. You find that the Vinaya is like encased in the life story of the Buddha. The life story of the Buddha comes with the Vinaya. And I think there is a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that where should this life story go? It doesn't really fit in the suttas because they're not, this is not a sutta really. This is more like a story. It's a narrative. Yeah, It's that someone has collected various stories about the Buddha, who he, who he was, and put it together into a story. So it's not really a sutta in the ordinary sense. A sutta is usually a specific teaching by the Buddha. This is not a specific teaching by the Buddha. It is an explanation or a story of his life. 
So there, and that is in that sense, it is quite similar to the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, yeah, the greatest Sutta on the Buddha's passing away. Yeah. That too is not a Sutta in the ordinary sense. The Mahaparinibbana is a, is the story of how the Buddha passed away yeah, and all the things that happened before he passed away, right? So this kind of connects with the Mahaparinibbana Sutta in a sense. But uh, so this is then the, what happened early in the Buddha's life, and the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is what happened late in the Buddha's life. Uh, so they kind of connect together in that sense. Uh, and the second, so it had to be put somewhere because it didn't fit in the Sutta, as they thought, yeah, okay, let's put it in the Vinaya maybe. So why put it in the Vinaya? Well, because the, how the Sangha developed, how the monastic community developed, comes out of the Buddha's awakening. Yeah? The Buddha awakens, then he teaches the Dhamma. We have seen that already. When he teaches the Dhamma, we'll see that in a second, people start to gain faith. Yeah? And then they go forth. And as soon as they go forth, they start misbehaving. <laughs> and as soon as they start misbehaving, the Buddha says, okay, we better lay down some rules. Yeah? And we have to show how ordination happens. And all of these kind of things. So it comes, so the vinaya and the regulations come out of the development of what happens after the Buddha's passing away. So it holds together very nicely here. So the vinaya begins with the Buddha's awakening, and then you have all the rules and regulations, and you have little stories in between of what happens to the Buddha yeah, throughout the vinaya. And then it ends with the famous councils where the monastics came together and compiled the teaching of the Buddha. That's where it ends. So it has kind of nice bookends, yeah? The beginning of the life of the Buddha and then the very end, at the, at, uh, coming at the end of the Vinaya. And the second reason, the third reason, or fourth reason, or fifth, or whatever it is, that I like to read this out because this is my translation. <laughs> <laughs> So this is kind of what I, if you want to read my translation, you can go on the, the internet, Sutta Central, and you can, I have the full translation of the Vinaya, it's found there. Yeah. And um, so this is my translation. So if you want to criticize this, then uh, come to me afterwards and tell me, uh, Venerable, this is no good. Uh, yeah, you've got to change <laughs> this. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not what the Pali means. Uh, so so <laughs> if you really find an error, I'll be very, very happy to change things, of course. Uh, Anyway, so this is the story at the Bodhi tree. The Buddha has just awakened. Yeah, he has just found the thing that he is looking for, the solution to the problem of death. Yeah, I mentioned before the audacity of going forth into the forest and trying to find a solution to the problem of death and suffering. He has found this. And what happens then after he's found this? This is what we find here. The story at the Bodhi tree, yeah, yeah, Bodhi Rukka, I think is the Pali word here, yeah. Bodhi, Bodhi, Bodhi Vattu, Bodhi Rukka Vattu, something like that. Yeah. Soon after his awakening, yeah, the Buddha was staying at Uruvela on the bank of the river Niranjara at the foot of the Bodhi tree, Bodhi Rukka Mula. There the Buddha sat cross-legged for seven days without moving, experiencing the bliss of freedom. Then, in the first part of the night, the Buddha reflected on dependent origination in forward order. The reverse can be taken out. This is just forward order here for this one. So, 
Here we have the Buddha at Uruvela on the bank of the river Naranjara. That is where he found his awakening experience. Yeah, At the foot of the Bodhi Jewel. This is a new thing that you haven't seen elsewhere. This is kind of added here. Yeah, And this is where this... Um, in, even in the present day, we have Bodhi trees everywhere, yeah, because they symbolize the awakening of the Buddha. That's where the Buddha was awakened. And uh, this Uruvela, the bank of the river Naranjara, is interesting. If you read the story that leads the Buddha's awakening, the again the Arya Pariyasana Sutta and the Mahasachaka Sutta and these suttas, uh, the Buddha talks about you know what led up to the awakening experience. And he says that you know if he went through all the time with the ascetic practices. Yeah, he went. He did took that to an extreme, and then he kind of abandoned those ascetic practices. And when he did that, he went to this place called Uruvela at the bank of the river Naranjara or Niranjana. And the way it is described in the suttas, it says, "I went to this place, a beautiful grove, yeah, beautiful grove." with a river nearby suitable for bathing, yeah? and a village not far away suitable for getting arms. It was a beautiful place and very suitable for being relaxed and at ease. And it's not, it, you can see what's happening here. The Buddha has moved away from the ascetic practices. And now he's finding that middle way where he can be at ease in the body. He's not pushing himself anymore. He goes to a place that is beautiful and suitable, has easy access to water and to food and all of these kind of things. So he is now moving. He's found that middle way, neither torturing himself nor indulging in sensual pleasures. And this is that famous story found in the Mahasachika Sutta, where the Buddha says, well, I have lived a life of indulgence as a layperson. I gave that up. That didn't work. I have now tortured my body to an extreme. I almost died. I was on the verge of dying. That didn't work. So what now? Could there be another path to awakening? And then the Buddha says, well, when I thought that, I, real, I thought back to the time as a child when I was sitting under the rose apple tree while my father was doing some work and I entered a jhana state. Could that be the path to awakening? And then the Buddha says, I realized this is the path to awakening. Yeah? And then he enters the jhanas. And, and of course, the jhanas requires a body that is not completely emaciated, a, a body that is strong, a body that is able to function. And then he finds the middle way. He practices the jhanas. He reaches awakening. And then here we are now. Yeah? This is where we are at now. On the bank of the river Naranjara, at the foot of the Bodhi tree. There the Buddha sat cross-legged, palanka is the Pali word for cross-legged, for seven days without moving. So that's pretty rough, seven days without moving, it's kind of, uh, you had to be really blissed out, in fact you probably have no awareness of the body at all, experiencing the bliss of freedom, yeah, the um, awakening bliss. And uh, the uh, so the idea here is that when you awaken yeah, and you experience the bliss of freedom, the idea is that the awakening experience is so powerful that you, after that you have this bliss in your mind which kind of lasts for a long, long period of time. 
And this is, uh, you know, when you hear someone, I don't know if you've ever met someone who has experienced awakening. It's kind of pretty rare. Yeah, I don't kind of hear about this a lot. But uh, if, you ha- if you ever have, a, have some conversation with someone who, who you think maybe this person might have experienced awakening, yeah, the way that it would describe it, it was that bliss is so powerful that your mind is just utterly blissed out for days afterwards, yeah. It's just complete bliss for a long time. And of course, if it is the arahantship, it's going to be very, very blissful. The Buddha is just enjoying that bliss. And then, as he, after enjoying the bliss, he starts to reflect on what it is that he has experienced. Yeah, and this becomes a, and this is what you find here. And that reflection is on dependent origination which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. So now the Buddha is inquiring, what actually have I experienced? Because remember, the experience of awakening is just like a flash. It is an experience in the present moment. It doesn't come with a vocabulary. It doesn't come with a structured kind of thing. It's just an insight. Yeah? Insight is like a seeing. It's like a glimpse of reality. Yeah? But it doesn't say how to express that insight. It's a very different thing. Yeah? So the Buddha now is reflecting, how can I express this insight? And this is how he expresses it. Yeah? So this is kind of a very, this is why this teaching is so profound, because it um, has to do with the expression of the insight into awakening here. So let me just read it out. This is a standard exposition of uh, dependent origination here. Ignorance is the, con- is the condition for intentional activities. Uh, Intentional activities are the condition for consciousness. Consciousness is the condition for name and form. Name and form are the condition uh, for the six sense spheres. The six sense spheres are the condition for contact. Contact is the condition for feeling. Feeling is the condition for craving. Craving is the condition for grasping. Grasping is the condition for existence. Existence is the condition for birth, or maybe rebirth. Rebirth is the condition for old age and death, for grief, sorrow, pain, aversion and distress to come to be. This is how there is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So. Dependent origination is about understanding why there is suffering. Yeah? Remember, the purpose of the Buddha's awakening was to find the, the solution to the problem of suffering. And here he is telling us why there is suffering in the world. It starts out with ignorance, right? And then from that ignorance, from that avidja, from that lack of understanding, that is how suffering comes into the world. This is what this teaching is about. So this is why this is the focus of the Buddha, because he had, this is exactly what he has found the solution to. But it's kind of cryptic, right? What does this actually mean? The first time you, I don't know what happened to you, first time you read Dependent Origination. I guess some of you have, are so used to these teachings, you heard it the first time when you were two years old or something. Yeah, if you, I don't know, some of you have probably grown up in Buddhist countries, so it's kind of imbibed, you know, from the very beginning. But uh, for someone like me, who didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture, I remember when I first read this, I thought, what is this all about? Ignorance is the condition for intentional activities? Uh Uh-huh, really? Okay, why? 
intentional activities are the condition for consciousness? What? This doesn't make any sense at all. Consciousness is the condition for name and form. This is even more cryptic. And you start, name and form is the condition for the six sense spheres. And it kind of, it's really hard to grasp. Yeah, you read this. Okay, then you get feeling is the condition for craving. Okay, that one you can kind of understand, right? Uh, birth is the condition for all days and death. Okay, I get that one. Yeah, you've got to be born, then you're going to get old. That kind of makes sense. Uh, but a lot of this is really, really cryptic. Yeah. So what does it actually mean? And uh, to understand what it means, uh, it is very useful to remember that dependent origination is just an expression of the second noble truth. Yeah, This is equivalent to the second noble truth. And if you understand the second noble truth, then you have an idea of what dependent origination is about. So what is the second noble truth? I haven't got it here, so you won't find it there, so I'm going to tell you what it is. The second noble truth is the idea that um, uh, it's uh, is, that, is the idea of craving being the origin of suffering, right? This is kind of the idea of the second noble truth. Um, so it is that very craving, yeah, yeah uh, which has to do with uh, rebirth. It is uh, the ponobhavika uh, tanha. Ponobhavika means the craving which leads to rebirth. Tatra tatra binandini, which delights here and there. And uh, Nandiraga Sahagata, which is conjoined with Nandi and Raga, Nadagalist, delight and craving, yeah, delight and desire. That is what that thing says. Sayatidang, that is to say, Kamatanha, Bhavatanha, Vibhavatanha, that is to say, the craving for the sensory world, the craving for existence, and the craving for non existence or annihilation. Now, so what, what is it about this one? Now, if you think about that, what I have just said, uh, there are three kind of critical things in there. Yeah, that, ton, th that craving is the origin of suffering. Those are two of the critical words. Yeah? Craving and suffering. Yeah? And the third one, which is critical there, which kind of stands out, is that it is pornobhavika. It leads to rebirth. Yeah, so there's these three three kind of core words in that formula craving suffering and rebirth if you look at the other words there tatra tatra binandini delighting here and there which is another way of talking about craving it doesn't add very much nandiraga sahagata connected with delight and and desire also is just reaffirming the idea of craving and then the last part, kamatana, bhavatana, vibhavatana, again, is about craving. But the three words that stand out, that make the second noble truth what it is, are craving, rebirth, and suffering. Craving, that has to do with rebirth, leading to suffering. That is what this dependent origination is about. It's an expansion on that idea. And... Um, the reason why I'm making a point of this is because dependent origination is inherently about the idea of rebirth. Yeah, the rebirth process is part of this. So when we say that craving leads to suffering, it is always via rebirth. It is rebirth which is the problem, because when you get reborn, you're going to have to experience the consequences of being reborn, which is 
basically going through the same thing again. The same deaths, the same sufferings, the same disappointments that we have in ordinary life again and again and again going on ad infinitum. Yeah, and after a while you get really fed up of all that, all those problems. So rebirth is inherent to this idea of dependent origination. Now, this is a very useful way of understanding what dependent origination is about. Because what you find in the suttas is that you find a large number of these causal sequences, one thing leading to the next. So the question then is, well, which ones of these causal sequences are about dependent origination and which ones are not? Sometimes you find causal sequences that have all the 12 links, but let's say that you leave out a couple of these links. Sometimes you find shorter expressions of this. Is it still dependent origination? At what point is it no longer dependent origination? If I just say birth leads to, leads to old age, is that dependent origination? If I say feeling leads to craving, is that dependent origination? Is that sufficient? And the answer is probably no. And now you know how to find out. And the way to find out is that any sequence which is called dependent origination has to have those three links. Craving, rebirth and suffering. That's the minimal requirement for something to be called dependent origination because it is an expression of the second noble truth and that is the critical aspects of the second noble truth. And so anything which has those three aspects, craving, rebirth and suffering, that can be considered an expression of dependent origination. And this is very interesting. I don't know if you find this interesting. I find this really fascinating. And the reason I find it fascinating is because this is something that is discussed very commonly in Buddhist circles. And what you find is that there are suttas, like you may know about the Madhupindika Sutta, do you know the Mandupindika Sutta? Yeah? So we have some, some kind of uh, <laughs> scholars around here. Very famous Sutta, Honeyball Sutta, yeah? the Majjhimanika number 18. And the Madhupindika Sutta has a similar kind of causal sequence. Yeah, the causal sequence there is that you have the sense. You know the Madhupindika Sutta, Ken? You know, Sue, you know the Madhupindika Sutta? You know? <laughs> Okay, you probably, many of you probably do already, but once you see it, you know what it is, right? So, Honeyball Sutta, right? And the Buddha, at the end of the Sutta, the Buddha says, oh, this Sutta is so beautiful, it's like a honeyball, it kind of tasted like a honeyball, that's what we call it, the Honeyball Sutta. And uh, so in that Sutta, if we want to look it up, go to the middle length sayings, number 18, and uh, it says, it starts off with, when you have the eye, and form, yeah, because of I and form, consciousness arises. Yeah, so this is kind of this is the meeting of the three is called contact. When you have contact, you have feeling. Yeah, this sounds like dependent origination. Yeah, contact leading to feeling sounds like dependent origination. And because of feeling, you have perception. I'm not sure if I can remember all the steps now because my mind is a bit vague, long, long, long times I read the sutta, but I think I know roughly. Because of perception, you have thought, vitaka. Because of thought, you have papancha, you have this proliferation. Because of papancha, you have papancha, sanya, sanka, which is the proliferation of ideas and perceptions. So is that dependent origination? Or is it not? It is a causal sequence. A lot of people argue this is dependent origination. But if you look at it, it lacks those characteristics I mentioned before. Yeah? 
he has to have craving, rebirth, and suffering here. So craving is kind of implied by this because it is implied in the idea of papancha, but it lacks the idea of rebirth, very obviously here. The idea of suffering is also maybe kind of implied, but not explicit. But it very clearly lacks the idea of rebirth. So we know that is not dependent origination. Is that useful? Actually, it's incredibly useful. Because these are the sort of things that people discuss. Yeah, That rebirth is fundamental to dependent origination is such an important thing. Because otherwise you misinterpret, misunderstand what the suttas have to say here. Anyway, I apologize for going on about that. Maybe I lost some of you on these kind of things. Uh, never mind. Yeah? The main point is rebirth is absolutely fundamental to dependent origination. That is the main point. Uh, I was so pleased with myself when I understood this. Yeah? I had to tell other people about it. Uh, that's why I'm kind of talking about these things. Uh, so. <laughs> you okay? Can you find it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Um, so this is uh, what this teaching really is about. Yeah? So why does the Buddha expand it in this way? Why are we not happy just to say craving, then rebirth, then suffering? Why isn't that good enough? What's the point of all these 12 links? It just makes it too complicated, right? Uh, hard enough to remember three things, let alone 12. Uh, <laughs> took me a long time to learn all these 12 links of dependent origination. Why? Add all this stuff uh, when we just want to talk about craving, rebirth, and suffering. Yeah. And the answer is one of the answers is that um, uh, you, you want to, when you understand the mechanism of something, when you understand the details, uh, it gives you more faith. Yeah, because you can understand why craving leads to rebirth, how the mechanism works. Uh, and it gives you an understanding also what you need to do to overcome these things. Uh, so one of the problems with craving leading to rebirth uh, is that uh, it doesn't really tell you how you overcome that. Uh, because how can you overcome craving? Well, yes, you can overcome craving by having some sense restraint, yeah? by not allowing craving to rise in daily life. Yeah? You can overcome craving by having a deep state of samadhi. Craving is gone. The problem is that craving always comes back again always comes back. You can restrain, you can hold back, you can have samadhi, but you need something more. And that more that you need is you need to have insight. Yeah? And that is why the Buddha brings the sequence back from craving all the way back to the very source, which is ignorance. Because that shows you very clearly that to overcome craving, you need to overcome ignorance. You need to see things according to reality. You need insight. That is what this shows you. So this is why the Buddha takes it all the way back to ignorance, because it explains what we need to do. And now you can see how this fits together with the Noble Eightfold Path in a very beautiful way. Because what is the purpose of the Noble Eightfold Path? It is to see things clearly. Yeah, it is to have insight. That is the whole point of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Noble Eightfold Path kind of slots in at the beginning there. Because the Noble Eightfold Path is what helps you to overcome ignorance. That is the whole point of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. That slots in at the beginning there. So now you can see how this becomes like a beautiful jigsaw puzzle where every piece fits together very nicely. Yeah? Everything has a meaning. Yeah? Everything kind of fits in very, very beautifully. Yeah? 
And then you have all of these other factors of dependent origination. And all they really do, they show you the connection between these factors. So why is it that ignorance leads to craving? Well, it shows you through all of those stages. Because you're ignorant, you, you do all these activities in the world. Yeah, you go out, yay, I'm going to create happiness for myself. And I'm going to do things, I'm going to become rich and have a wonderful relationship. And that is the ignorance leading to all these activities that we do to create that happiness. And then all that creative activity affects your mind state. Yeah, in a good way if you're kind, in a bad way if you are unkind. So it creates a conscious state in the future. In fact, it also allows consciousness to continue in the most basic sense. And because your consciousness in a certain way, then name and form, the, all the other things that comes with consciousness, they have a certain shape depending on how your consciousness is established in the world. Etc. 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 I don't want to go into all the details because uh, it takes. This is not a course on dependent origination, uh, which really takes another week at least, uh, probably actually two weeks. Uh, so uh, we leave that out for now, not to make it too complicated. Uh. So this is what the Buddha is reflecting on. Yeah, he's reflecting on the cause of suffering. This is what he has awakened to. Now he is understanding how the whole thing fits together. Uh. And this is how there is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Yeah. Seeing the significance of this, the Buddha exclaimed an inspired utterance. This is the Udana. When things become clear to the energetic Brahmin who practices absorption, then all his doubts are dispelled since he understands the natural order and its conditions. When things become clear to the energetic Brahmin who practices absorption, absorption here is jhana, jayato yeah, is the, the Pali word. So when you are energetic and you practice jhanas, these two things coming together, then that leads to clarity. Yeah, this is what makes you see. Again, you can see here how this fits together with the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path ends with the jhanas. That is what leads to clarity of seeing. Yeah. Yeah, this is, and this is, we see this throughout the suttas. The suttas you have samma, samadhi leading to yata bhuta, nyanadasana. Seeing things clearly comes from samma, samadhi. So this is what he's saying. So when you see things clearly, all your doubts are dispelled. Why? Because you know, you have seen it for yourself. What is it that you have seen? You understand the natural order and its conditions. Sahetuka Dhamma is the Pali. Sahetu Dhamma or whatever. Hetu is the cause. And Dhamma is here. Like Dhamma is this word that is very broad. And it means like nature, really. You understand nature. Yeah, this is what we understand in Buddhism. Nature means, in this case, understanding how we function as human beings, why we're here, how these births, rebirths happen, all of these things. This is what is meant here by understanding nature. Yeah, it's like a psychological nature, if you like, ultimately. So you understand why we are here, why we are reborn, why we experience all of this stuff, and understand the causes for that. The cause is craving. The cause is ignorance. Then you have rebirth. Then you have suffering. That is what this really is about.
okay. Is it okay? Yeah. <laughs> If it's not okay, then write some questions and we can discuss it later on. Uh, so uh, there you are. I apologize if it was a little bit too much details without any suitors apprehended uh, uh, to it. Uh, but um, anyway, so uh, that's all for this morning. So uh, please continue enjoying yourself. Have a nice lunch. And we'll see you back again at two o'clock this afternoon. Uh, this is pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>